Hi, everybody. I'm Josh Constein, your host of Press Club, where the big names in tech talk about the big ideas. And today we're talking about the future of learning and how gaming and education will intersect in the metaverse. We're here with the founders of Class Dojo, Sam Chaherty and Liam Don, as well as Megan Lois, one of their investors from Lira Hippo. And Class Dojo has quietly become one of the world's biggest ed tech companies. They're serving over 50 million students. They're in nine out of 10 US K to eight schools. They're actually serving one in 20 kids on the planet now. And today they just announced a $1.25 billion valuation on top of their $125 million new fundraise. And their plans to build an educational metaverse, you know, a truly safe place that parents and teachers can trust kids to get to spend their time while they're learning learning from each other, learning from these incredible games and actually enjoying their time so education isn't a chore anymore. I'm your host, Josh Constein, former editor-at-large for TechCrunch and now a venture partner at SignalFire. And I just want to jump in and ask you, Sam and Liam, maybe you could just talk to us, what's been broken about communication and digital learning in traditional education? Because I feel like there's so much broken for you guys to improve on. Yeah, I can jump in there. See, you asked initially about communication. By the way, great to be here. Hi, Josh. Hi, Megan. There's first the education piece, which we started by solving. And then there's actually the learning and really child development. So on the communication piece, which is how do parents know what's happening at school? When we first started doing that, creating a channel between teachers and parents, initially some teachers were kind of wary because they were used to having a PTA meeting once a semester, and they were like, okay, am I going to get bugged by parents? But what we actually found was that it was really useful for the teachers because they built a lot of trust with parents. Now parents you know, see photos and videos from the classroom of all the highlights, and that just builds a ton of trust between the teacher and the parent and really kind of smooths that relationship. But the biggest stuff that we're getting into now is really what does the education system actually do for kids? You know, what do you come out with what, you know, for, the, for the average, for the median kid? And we think that's kind of really broken because it's a, a one-size-fits-all thing. There are just sort of targets and standards that you ha- have to hit by a certain age. And it really isn't preparing kids to be successful adults out in the world, the world that's changing all the time. So we'll get into this, but you know, a lot of what we think about is how can we help kids find whatever their unique talent or passion is and then take that as far as it can go. And I think that piece in particular is what the current sort of public education system is really bad at. Yeah, I think what I'm also interested here is that you know whenever we've seen tech companies come into this space, you know they're either starting from the really like hardcore education space, kind of trying to sell to schools, and they're really stuck in the old school bureaucracy, or they're these sort of new school and social networks or gaming companies that really are just trying to drive growth in business. They don't necessarily care about kids' education or kids' well-being. And so, looking at that landscape, how did you come up with this idea to try to go more in this direction of making learning fun, but safe at the same time. And you know, maybe how did COVID impact that? Because it seemed like suddenly digital learning, remote learning became top of mind for everybody. And it felt like more broken than we could have ever imagined. I can talk a bit to that, Josh. So Liam and I moved out to the Bay Area well, a little over 10 years ago now. We were part of an incubator here called Imagine K-12. It's now part of Y Combinator. When we got here, we were kind of like outsiders a little bit, honestly, to the U.S. education system. Like, we'd never lived here before. It was our first time here. You know, we'd done lots of stuff in and around education before. I described the weird school I went to, which insisted on kids teaching as well as learning. I taught off to college and then uh, worked in on some education stuff. And Liam had worked at, you know, companies building amazing games for kids and was doing a PhD in computer science focused on uh, how kids learn in classrooms. 
So we got out here and, you know, we kind of had the thing of like uh, being very naive and starting from scratch. And we observed this thing where there were like a lot of companies were selling software to schools. And there's nothing per se wrong with that, but it never felt like it was serving the real customer. Selling software to the system is not the same as serving the people, like the people being kids, teachers and families who are actually making education happen. There's too many stories about this where you have like these big enterprise sales things happening at the district a million miles away from the classroom. You know, the fact is like education is actually, it's not like this mechanical process that happens from the top down. It's a human process that comes about from the people doing the work. In our case, teachers, kids, and families. So it made a lot of sense to us to focus on the people and serve the people over the system. And that's kind of just always been Dojo's orientation that we were going to be this company that was trying to act in the best interest of the people and in particular in the best interest of kids. And, you know, the, the other point you mentioned is there's a lot of the social networks and kind of social media companies, it's hard for them to act in the best interest of kids because so many of those are um, ad-supported companies. It's not like a great alignment of incentives. So I think on the one hand, we had companies selling to the system, you know, which always felt, I think, a bit to us like, imagine you're trying to build Airbnb by selling software to hotels. It just doesn't really add up. And then on the other side, you had you know, consumer internet companies that they're not really trusted to serve kids in any real way because they all started in the wrong place. And you know, many of them are open and ad-supported kind of social networks. And they're not really about kids learning and growing. So I think for Dojo, like, uh, we kind of had this belief that we could build a technology company that really served kids and was built with their long-term best interests in mind. And that's kind of been the core principle as we built Dojo. And Liam and Sam, maybe just talk to me a little bit about how your own education influenced that. Sam, you mentioned that you went to a school where they wanted the kids to teach other kids, where it was like giving them kind of the agency there. We would love to hear what your education was like growing up and how that influenced this mission, because it feels like if you're stuck in the same old school system, you might never even notice that there are ways that it could be so massively improved. Yeah, so my education, especially the elementary, middle school part of it, was fairly unique, if not weird, because uh, so I went to a Waldorf school or a Steiner school. When I was about 14 years old, I switched to a, a regular public school, a regular state school. But the Steiner school is an interesting one because they have a pretty unique philosophy where it's mostly, until you're about seven years old, they just want you to play. In fact, they don't teach you the alphabet or any math or anything like that. They don't teach you to read until that age. My brother ended up teaching me to read when I was five, which was sort of <laughs> something you weren't supposed to do. Like they will actively discourage you from getting too academic too early. <clears throat> very um, naughty. Yeah, very naughty I, that I did that. And then after that, you're still doing a ton of really wide range of stuff like gardening, woodwork, you know, having singing lessons all the time and, and things like that, which, you know, obviously that's a pretty sort of formative experience to go through. And I've got to say it was kind of a culture shock when I went to a regular public school after that. <laughs> Hope you didn't get teased too much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I think it, it has informed what we do now because the big sort of thing they're trying to achieve there, I think, is, is just exposing you as a child to a wide range of different experiences, wide range of different sort of, a lot of them creative, but some of them, you know, more, more logical. And I sort of think of that as, as kids finding their spark, like finding something that lights you up and gets you excited enough to be self-motivated to pursue it. Because if you think about learning, it's hard to learn something all the way through. You have to to really grind through some stuff, right? It can't all be joyful. And what's the fuel that pushes you through that? I think a lot of the regular education system is how can we push kids through all of this material that they have to learn? But if you can kind of create that spark up front where as a child really excited about an angle on what you need to learn, then you really drive yourself through that. So that was one of the big things I took away from it. I wouldn't say that every kid should go to a school like that. I think there are downsides. 
but there's a big part of that flavor that I think uh, we can bring to every kid in any public school district. And I think that's sort of a piece of that is really missing in, in most schools. Yeah, it feels like we kind of lost a lot of that idea of like the village raises the kids that like we kick kids to school. They have this like very changing relationship, new teachers every year. And a lot of the work is very like individual, like, even though you're in a classroom, the teacher wants it quiet. So they're just like, everybody do your own quiet work at your desk. Then you go home, you do all your individual work. When I feel like we're fundamentally pack animals. And I think we especially thrive around education when we're actually doing activities, when we're like have our, our hands on. But even more so when we have other people that are doing it with us, when we feel like we're doing it as a group, like group projects were always fun, even if they were sometimes stressful and not everyone pulled their weight, it was still like, oh, we're all on this project together. And I, you know, I went to that like mission to Mars simulator when I was in public school growing up and I loved that. And it was like, oh my God, teamwork and like, you know, everyone having their own specialized role and we don't all have to be drones that do the exact same thing. I feel like that's such an important part of learning, but especially, you know, in the West where we've moved away from generational living when most are nuclear families living by themselves. And especially now as there's norms of like, oh, you can't just like let kids go play by themselves in groups in the neighborhood. We're so walled off from each other that I feel like we've lost a lot of that. So like maybe you could talk to me a little bit about how you guys are trying to bring that back. Yeah, I can chat a little bit about this. I mean, Josh, I think a lot of what you alluded to, it's really kind of like a bit of a hangover, right? Like, so a lot of the ideas in the formal education system they weren't actually made for the circumstances of the world we live in now. The roots, and this is a lot of people know this, but the roots of like the formal education system was in around the time of the Industrial Revolution. And you can see a lot of the um, constructs are kind of like left over from then, right? And so like there's been enormous change in the world. There's no need for the system to be modeled on the interests and the images of industrialism. But some of the things you described, for instance, kids being grouped by age, in school. I mean, that's like an organizing principle. That's like, you know, for administrative efficiency. It's not how the real world works, right? We live in families, like you said, and, and, and communities, and you, you learn across age groups, and you have friends of different ages and all the rest of it. But, you know, I think kids and teachers today are spending like a huge amount of time in conditions that, you know, were designed for kind of like mass production. And I think at the core of it, the system really starts with conformity. It's a very real value. It's not any teacher or school or anyone choosing it. It's just, like I said, a hangover of a system that was designed ages ago. And the problem, of course, with that is what you're describing is that people aren't standardized. That's not how the world works. You know, like kid, and as Liam said earlier, kids have an enormous um, breadth and depth of talents and capacities. And, you know, like the mix of nature and nurture leads to every human life being kind of unique and unrepeatable, unprecedented. And we have this broad range of capacities. And they're very distinctive. And the system, unfortunately, isn't nuanced to those individual differences. And, and I think, you know, I think that ought to change. You know, I kind of think like it's uh, the way we will have like the brightest possible future is when everybody gets a chance to discover and then develop their deepest capacities and apply them to move, moving the world forward in some way. And Liam called it finding your spark. It's the thing that you love to do, the thing you're good at. And that I think leads to individual kind of fulfillment and flourishing and if all of us got that, then you imagine like all of us would be, we'd have a much more flourishing kind of society. One thing I want to underscore, which made from my experience was like, I didn't have the kind of school Liam had, but ours was really focused on community and on kids looking out for each other. And I think like great teachers really know this, that the classroom, and, and we've seen this in like really great classrooms, like the classroom is really nothing more than a learning community. It's a group of people who come together to learn from and with one another. And I think like that, of course, happens in the school day. It also extends back to families and, and you know, the people who care for kids beyond the walls of the classroom. 
And so I think what Dojo did to start with was we kind of just realized that there was a big divorce. When we spoke to teachers and, and kids and families, there was a big divorce between the six or seven hours of the school day and then the other half of the day at home. Like kids would go from one place to the other and the two halves never speak to each other. And we thought about it a lot as like a, an opportunity to reconstruct the village, as you said, around kids to, to give them that sense of community again. Yeah, it makes sense. Megan, I'd love to hear your perspective here. You know, you're an investor at Lira Hippo, really great in you know, sort of broad context on both the education startup scene, but also kind of how norms are changing for the younger generations. As I know that you started the, you know, the, the Gen Z VCs club and, and are really close to sort of what's going on in the next generation and how their norms end up impacting the rest of industry and business. Yeah, for sure. I think We've spent a lot of time at Lear Hippo and, and just, you know, in Gen Z world thinking about the future of the metaverse and what that means. I think a lot of people don't understand that the metaverse is gaming, right? And so you look at the size of that market and just like where the next generation of children are living online, right? Like half of children in America play Roblox today. It's gaming. And what I think is so exciting about what Class Dojo is doing is they've done all the hard work to build these sort of social interest graphs where like it's a trusted and safe environment. Everyone is coming together in one central place, but it's people that you know. It's a trusted sort of ecosystem, which doesn't really exist in a lot of other places today. And I think especially when you think about like younger Gen Zs, Gen Alpha, that's a really interesting value prop for parents. And also the whole idea of sort of what Class Dojo is building in the metaverse is it's supposed to be fun. One of the quotes in the piece from Alex was like, it's not just going to be a bunch of kids playing math games, right? Like, because that, that exists already. I think this is what's, what's really interesting is really helping children build the way that they want to build and either a single or multiplayer experience. And I do think for metaverses of the future, that piece is really, really important where you can show up as a kid after school have fun on your on your own and sort of explore your own like self-expression and creativity, but also have the opportunity to play with other kids and have a good time that way. So, you know, I think thematically, at least when we think about Class Dojo and sort of just like broader things we're seeing for education in the metaverse, it's spot on, which is awesome to see. And a testament, of course, to Sam and Liam. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, it feels like a place that the parents and teachers actually feel good about kids spending their time is so important because otherwise, if you make it really feel like a chore, like the learning games I feel like I grew up with really felt like a lot more of a chore than they did a game. And that means that you're never going to get them to spend the kind of long session lengths that you get on these traditional uh, video games. Yep. Sam and Liam, I wanted to hear the kind of the evolution. So maybe tell me like what Class Dojo was and now what you want Class Dojo to be. Like what is the experience actually going to be like, you know, concretely for students in this new evolution of the of the company? When we first started, you know, we started off trying to build that bridge between a teacher and a parents and just really support everything that was happening around the classroom in any way we could. So we kind of made some tools for teachers, but we also made all of these communication features and so on. Where it's going, I think I want to kind of come back to something you mentioned earlier, which was about how kids can't play outside anymore. And I think this is really, play is really fundamental to learning because when you play, you're giving yourself the ability to fail safely. And to learn something, I think you need to be able to fail safely. If you think about any job that you've had, if you think about the best work you've ever done, I think you probably had some kind of, kind of leeway or freedom and if you think about when you've felt really stressed and haven't been able to do a great job, there's often a ton of metrics involved and you have to hit this target and we're going to measure it and track every aspect of it. And I think that's what a lot of education has turned into in the, in the sort of quest to get better results. We've put tons of metrics around everything. So where we're going is, you know, we started out in more traditional forms of communication like 
chat, photo and video sharing. But now I think it's we want to actually create spaces where kids can gather together, where they can have their own agency. And then the world itself, you know, concretely, it's a very emergent sort of sandbox type world where you can create things or, or solve puzzles and all do this all collaboratively. But the philosophy of the heart of it is that it's play because play is the ability to fail safely. And so we're going to let you do kind of experiments with things and, and that kind of thing. It's not about sort of following missions of the set and saying, you passed this, you passed that. That's kind of what we were talking about when we said it's not a math game with robots. It's more about a shared space and environment where you can choose what you want to do and see if it worked and fail safely. I totally agree. This came up in my studies. I designed this master's program in cyber sociology at Stanford in part because I was so mad that the BJ Fogg, this big like persuasive technology professor at Stanford was advocating that parents friend their kids on Facebook and they have this like total transparency with them. And to me, that's really the death of experimentation for kids. Like when you have your parent watching you on a social network, it's a lot like them standing right next to you on the playground. Like you're never going to be able to fully participate with your peers. You're always going to be like looking to them for the answer and you're going to be kind of scared to fail. And if you do fail, someone just hands you the answer. You don't kind of have to trial and error your way to success. And so I I wrote a big thesis being like, no, parents should not friend their kids. Kids should actually block their parents or restrict what their parents see so they can be themselves. That development of experimental identity is so critical there. What kind of things are kids going to be doing in this class dojo metaverse if it's not just kind of playing these math games? What does it mean to kind of be able to experience and fail and find your own way and socialize in this new world. Actually, I'll just quickly say on that, on the safety piece, parents do need to feel it's safe, right? And there's one way of doing that is allowing the parent to see everything and then you get into the problem that you just mentioned. But we sort of believe that it's sort of structurally safe because kids on the platform can only meet up and play with other kids that they know from school. So it's sort of safe because it's not like kind of Roblox or other games where there's a load of random people from the internet. And really what we're trying to do there is make sure the parent feels good about this so that they don't have to come in and watch everything the kid is doing so that the kid has that agency. But yeah, the kind of things that they're going to be able to do, there's a little bit of a sort of Minecrafty aspect to the every kid has their own personal island that they can build and they can use different types of blocks. It doesn't look like Minecraft, but it's sort of a little similar. They can build things, they can create kind of contraptions that will launch you across the island. You can invite other friends to visit that island. Then you also have the shared class island where all the kids can kind of hang out together. And that's sort of like the hub where there are different sort of mini games, some of which are more puzzly, but a lot of it is about you actually building out the world yourself and other kids being able to then visit the worlds that you've built. It's sort of a, a big kind of creator aspect uh, where we're not putting the world in front of you. We're just giving you all of the ingredients and the different blocks and different props that you can add to it to create like this little world and share it with your friends. I agree with everything Liam said. I think the other part, which will come honestly more over time, it's pretty early for now. It's to do with the creator side of things. We've talked about Dojo's mission being to give every kid on the planet an education they love. It's so important that kids get a breadth and depth of learning experiences that go far beyond the narrow set that most schools are able to provide. So one way we're doing that is we're starting to work with some interesting creators. We actually started with a few teachers to create just amazing learning experiences for kids. And these are far beyond the math games of days gone past. Um, These are like really complex, interesting collaborative problem-solving activities that you do together. So I'll give you an example. We had a teacher work with our team to come up with this mission called the Mission to Mars. And the Mission to Mars had small groups of kids, and there are groups of three to five kids per team, and there are multiple teams, and they're trying to figure out all the challenges involved in establishing a civilization on on Mars. And these are like young kids. These are seven to 10-year-old kids. 
And it was really amazing what, what happens when, you know, the teacher's not teaching, they're just kind of facilitating. The first week is how do you get through an atmosphere? And you've got kids desperately trying to find out what an atmosphere is and why it's hard to get through one. And then the next week, the same group is talking about who should have the first footprint on Mars and why. The kids are just unbelievably engaged and, you know, kids loving the, uh, the stimulation, I think, of like more complex and interesting things. So I think whenever you you deal with like putting these kind of kids together in a space like this, there's always like the moderation issue. Like you don't want the teacher to be kind of like dictating, but at the same time, like you got to make sure that the kids aren't bullying each other. You know, when they're in a classroom, the teachers serve as a bit of an enforcement officer at the same time. So how do you guys kind of imagine that working? As I think, you know, if you can nail that, it's such an unlock for people being like, yeah, let my kids hang out there all day, the same way that people used to feel like their neighborhood was safe. And so sure, you can just let the kid run around and you don't have to worry. And if anything, they're really getting a lot out of it. Well, as you said, I think the neighborhood one is a good example. Why is that not a thing anymore? I think it's mostly the fear of external threats. It's not that you're scared of your kid's friend. I think that, you know, we're kind of creating a, a playground that's, uh, that's online and there's going to be, you know, kids are sometimes going to be mean to each other. Kids are going to argue with each other as well. But some of that conflict, we're not trying to like eliminate all of that. There's learning in sort of figuring out how to resolve difficulties with each other. So we're not trying to like moderate away every kind of interaction that kids can have with each other. We are making sure that there aren't kind of trolls and outside people in this environment, just the kids from your class. Other than that, there are obviously going to be all the standard sort of safety and reporting features, and we're going to allow the teacher to kind of step in and see if something's happened. But I just sort of stress the point that I don't think it's about eliminating disagreements or, or anything like that, because at this age, kids age sort of six to 10, it's really important to have those disagreements and to figure them out. You can bring grown-ups into it when you need to, but a surprising amount of the time, you know, kids will negotiate and overcome that kind of stuff. So just a point of view on that, I think. What have you found like wins over parents or teachers when they're maybe a bit skeptical about this? They're like, yeah, it's just another video game or like, I don't want my kids spending screen time. And maybe I'd love to just hear like your opinions on kids and screen time, because I think that's such a raging debate. And, you know, there's a lot of nuanced perspectives. Some just think it's like about counting screen time. Some people think it's about there's good screen time and bad screen time. You know, I personally think that like in social networks, like zombie scrolling through feeds and comparing yourself to other people's photos, like that can be self-destructive. But like, creating, posting, commenting, messaging, generally quite positive. And so if you're just looking at how much time do you spend on Instagram, that might not actually be a good metric, but how much time are you scrolling versus messaging and creating might be a lot better. Yeah, sure. I'll quickly, what really resonates with parents, I would say, is when they hear that it's kids will only be playing with kids that they know. And that's kind of huge. And it's hard to sort of find another platform like that. If you're talking about, you know, Roblox or something, could be random kids, could be grown-ups, you don't know who, who your kids are playing with. And so that's a huge sort of USB when parents hear it. But in terms of screen time, yeah, I agree with you. I think it's about the nature of the screen time. And I would break it down by, are you just doing kind of pure consumption? You mentioned sort of zombie scrolling. I think it becomes a lot healthier if you are doing something other than just consuming. And so sort of endless YouTube can also be, I would say, kind of bad because you're just constantly consuming that way. There's something kind of interesting here, I think, about the iPad, which is a device that most kids are using, which is really like a consumption device. I think there was almost a shift when we started moving over to tablets from computers, from it being a creation consumption device to primarily just something where you can scroll and binge watch stuff. And so, you know, we'd really like to bring it back to more like the 90s when I was a kid and I had a computer, you know, you would play games, but you could model the games, you could get into making HTML and CSS and 
just a lot of lot more stuff was not locked down. And I think starting from like around 2010, when the iPad came out, all kinds of social experiences and, and apps have kind of become, this is what the app creator wants to deliver to you without you being able to kind of roll up your sleeves and also change it. So I think that kind of screen time, if you can see something and then be like, oh, cool, I want to make something that's like that, but better, something that really encourages creation or encouraging more engagement with other people, not in a sort of Instagram-y status flashing way, then I think that's healthy screen time. Megan, I'd love to hear your thoughts on like how those norms amongst parents might be evolving over time. Like, Are you seeing parents taking a new approach to screen time than they did maybe five or 10 years ago when it was really like this big boogeyman that, oh, our kids are going to end up with these super short attention spans or they're never going to be able to interact with people outside or, oh God, they're trying to swipe and scroll on like book pages. And it seemed like there was this really a lot of like FUD about this all when in reality, a lot of times it's like, hey, the fact is that like computers are the future of the world. That's how business works. Like having kids be like, you know, digitally literate can be very good for them in a lot of ways. So we'd love to hear your thoughts. Maybe now as millennials who grew up on screens have started to become those parents, how that's changed those norms. Sure. Yeah. And I think actually COVID played a really big role here, right? Where kids were almost forced to just live more online, right? Like it was a source of sort of social activity for younger children. It was also where they did their classes. It was how they communicated with their grandparents when they couldn't see them during COVID. And so I think that brought a lot of comfort forward on just like the idea of screen time, right? Where it's like, now we're almost being forced to do everything online. And of course, you know, as folks go back to school, things are hybrid learning. You're seeing that a lot with universities, especially. I think just naturally, like you're seeing that type, same type of adoption across healthcare, the same thing for education. And I do think with younger kids, especially, I mean, it's funny, right? So I'm Gen Z myself. I graduated from college in 2019. And I remember getting a phone in sixth grade was like, revolutionary way back when. Now you see kids getting phones in elementary school to be able to sort of communicate safely with their parents. And as a result, there's often, you know, certain types of controls and things that the parents put in place simply because the kids are so much younger when they're getting phones, but they're communicating, they're online. And I think for parents, they want to be extra careful about where those kids are spending time online, right? I think TikTok is becoming more and more dangerous, I think, for younger kids, especially, right? Like, you don't know what's going to pop up in your algorithm. And so I do think that idea of educational enrichment in some way, shape or form, where kids are encouraged to create and sort of be themselves, but in a safe environment. And I can't understate that enough. Like, I think the the safety piece, especially for younger kids, is just so, so important because a bunch of other platforms just they're not able to nail it in the same type of way because of the, the way they're architectured. So in summary, screen time, it's definitely evolved. I think COVID played a very big role, but I think at the end of the day, this is just where kids are spending more time online gaming, right? And so you want them to be able to do it in a safe place. And I think that's why the, the you know this is so exciting in particular. One of the funniest things, I, and you, you had this incredible quote in the Forbes article, which is that kids actually dress up like the class dojo monster for Halloween. And like, how many education companies can you say that about? This really must feel like something very different, not just to the parents, not just to the teachers, but really to the kids. If like they actually identify with it the way that they might with like Sesame Street or with their favorite superheroes, you know, something they actually want to like dress up as and be a part of. Sam and Liam would just love to hear like, how did the class dojo matter? 
mascot come about? And like, how did you build that into part of the company culture of it being playful and silly and not necessarily being like human representations, but this thing that maybe is a little bit more plushy and silly and fun and maybe like feel makes the whole company feel like, hey, you're not just this like beige software company. You're actually making something that's for kids. First of all, say it's not just kids. Also, teachers actually dress up as as pastiche <laughs> monsters for Halloween too. So, yeah, okay. This is going to maybe get into sort of the really early days and and kind of what it's like when you start a company or when you start a startup. So, I think we were kind of young when we started, and we were kind of silly. You know, we we loved to joke around and stuff like that. And then our second hire, first it was just two of us, and then we hired a, a former teacher who helped us guide the product and answer user emails and stuff like that. And then our second hire was. Monica, who was an illustrator, and she was kind of um, a crazy woman who would create skateboards and stuff like that. She was like a skateboarder, a painter. And that's like really not what you'd probably advise people to do as your second hire, but we just really, really loved <laughs> what, all of her crazy stuff. We were like, the monsters are kind of almost a toned down version of her art. And we were like, kids would love this. So we brought Monica on and then she designed Mojo the mascot along with lots of other monsters. I think I'd just say sort of in the early stage when you're just two or three people, I think it's really worth doing something like that, something kind of counterintuitive or that's not something you read on all the blogs because it really kind of can create some differentiation for your company, something unique that gives it a bit of soul. So one of the best decisions I think we ever made was hiring Monica as, as our second hire. Yeah, I think, Liam, if I remember, it was um, we had this view in the, in the early version of the app, which you know, had all the, uh, the kids in the classroom. And we didn't want, I thought it'd be really boring and, you know, to have like, I know, profile pictures and kind of who wants profile pictures of kids under 13, that doesn't really add up. So we spoke to Monica, we're like, well, what, what should we have here instead? And uh, she was like, monsters. <laughs> and, then, and that's how they came about. And then, uh, and then Mojo came about. So it wasn't a grand design to start with, but they've certainly become very loved and, and popular. Now you've inspired me. I really want to do an article on like the greatest startup mascots. So, so thank you for that idea. I feel like you guys in the duo lingo owl might have to duke it out for the top spot. Sam, I want to hear a little bit about, you know, what happens next? Because I think a lot of people talk about the metaverse and they're like, oh, I'm not going to spend all my time in virtual reality. This metaverse thing is silly. But I think it's really not about that. There's a difference between immersiveness and it having to be like fully occluding the rest of your world around you. So we'd love to hear like, what are some of the gaming experiences that you think are really working for kids right now or that you've personally been excited about? But where do you want to see you know, the metaverse, whatever that actually in instantiates as? What do you want to see happen there in the next few years? And what kind of infrastructure do we need to be able to have the kind of experiences that really let kids be themselves and have fun online safely? Yeah, I'll let Liam comment on some of the some of the things that he's really excited about. I think for me, as it pertains to learning, over the last couple of years through the pandemic and everything, I think the whole world just got thrust into doing everything online. And I actually think that's not the future. I don't think that going from doing everything in real life to doing 100% of things online is what we should be anticipating. I think we're going into a hybrid future where we'll do some things in real life because they make so much more sense there and some things in virtual space where those can be done better. For me, when I think about the future of education and learning, I think this is going to be an enormous trend. There are some jobs and some things that school does extraordinarily well. And we talked earlier about kids playing together more, getting outside together more, like being in nature more. Those are really important things that you can't replicate in virtual space. But there are other things that I think could be done incredibly well in virtual spaces and which shake off perhaps some of the constraints that school has. We've talked about some of them. And one of them is um, 
there's a relatively narrow set of learning experiences and, and passions and interests that most kids get to explore because they're kind of limited to whatever their local school can give them. And, you know, it's not the school's fault. It's just it's a hard job to serve 500 different kids with 500 different interests and needs and, and dreams and motivations. So a, a place where kids could get an infinite breadth and depth of experiences, that would be really amazing. And you can imagine you're really obsessed with dinosaurs or space or something. And, you know, it turns out the other kids aren't. Like, what do you do? Well, I'm hoping that uh, Dojo can help you find those passions and then really dive deep and find a tribe to dive deep with as well. So that's one uh, area that I think will be really powerful in, in, in these kind of virtual environments. And then another is, is access. We take it for granted almost, I think, in the West that people go to school. But there's a huge chunk of the world's population that doesn't get to go to school, but also doesn't get to go to a very good school. And I think like having a place where you can learn that isn't gated by your zip code is just really important. Having access to anyone with an internet connection anywhere on the planet at any time, I think that matters a great deal. And you know, those are two things I'm hoping will come forth in uh, as, as far as education goes. So are you imagining this as more of like a developer platform? Because I would love the idea of like teachers or game developers from around the world, maybe using no code tools or things that are a little bit easier for a more mainstream audience to be able to build experiences that could get approved and then built and integrated into the kind of class dojo metaverse. Is that what you're imagining? Because like personally, I think it really brought up around the professions. Like there's so many professions that kids don't even know existed. Like I didn't really know anything about journalism and I ended up being a journalist for 10 years. And I feel like if I had gotten more exposure to it when I was younger that's like, oh, it's not just about like re-reporting the same thing that a hundred other journalists around the world are doing. It's about like investigating, finding something really different to write about or finding your own passions and writing about it. And I would have gotten interested in it a lot sooner. So, and would love to see like each profession or dream that kids have like manifested in their own kind of games or learning experiences. So what are you imagining there on the kind of developer uh, ecosystem front? Yeah, that is 100% kind of at the heart of it. I think to talk about metaverse, you know, it's a pretty loaded word that means kind of everything and nothing, right? And I think as soon as you have multiple people together in 3D, people are going to these days call that metaverse. We're mostly excited about the aspects of people being able to be together in a space and yes, to be able to kind of create things within that space. I think those are the two ingredients that, you know, I'm super excited about. I'm less kind of excited about the VR I think we're imagining sort of creator tools that, as you said, are kind of no-code style. If you look at Roblox, they have some creator tools, but they're really still coding. And so the creators on Roblox tend not to be the kids. They're typically a bit older. So we want to make something that's easy enough to use that both the kids who are on the platform can use it and teachers can use it. And teachers can take experiences that other teachers have created and remix them and, and modify them and just make that really, really accessible. And I think what excites me about the overall concept metaverse is mostly that applying the sort of lessons of the web to 3D spaces and then having this sort of Cambrian explosion of creativity where people can create new spaces, create new environments, be inspired by other people's environments and then create their own. And just to make that kind of as easy as possible. And I think that's how we get to like a huge range of different experiences for kids. Yeah, I think one of the things that excites me most about this is they're just being a better third space for kids. The idea that, you know, like, 
first place is your home. Second space is often like school or work. But like third place, that's you know, the pub. That's the you know the clubhouse, the place where people actually spend time talking about their interests and building friendships. You know, as we mentioned, with kids being walled off more and more from each other, with you know more social isolation, you know, in the post-COVID era, parents being afraid of their kids going out in public or hanging out in the neighborhood, we get a lot of that isolation. And I think that's a particularly problematic for young boys because they have a harder time, I find, doing the the face-to-face interaction. You know, boys often thrive in that kind of shoulder-to-shoulder interaction where they're collaborating on something, they're playing a sport together, but like they're not really just like calling each other up on the phone and talking for hours together. You know, I never did that like with my with my male friends growing up. But what I think is super exciting is that in the gaming world, that has been normalized. You know, kids play Fortnite or things like that together where like actually most of the game is relatively solitary and there's like moments of like heated action, but there's a lot of kind of like searching and mining and, you know, crafting. And in that time period, they're often just chatting. They're just talking with each other. And you get these like multi-hour phone calls between young boys that just never happened prior to gaming. So I'd love to hear about like your thoughts on live audio chat and how you can integrate that into, you know, allowing kids to feel like, hey, I can talk about my feelings. I can talk about who I really am and who I want to be. And it's not in that really kind of high pressure format of you're looking right in my face and I feel like I'm in the spotlight and I'm under pressure, but instead just like, oh yeah, it's totally natural to just discuss this stuff while we're doing something else fun. Yeah. I was talking to a teacher about two weeks ago and she told me that she'd heard from her students that they would log on to Fortnite. They would find like a little cave somewhere that was out of the way and all get together, not shoot each other, and then just sit around in this cave chatting. And then if a, if a different player came along, they'd be like, ah, you know, but that was kind of what they were using it for. And I think that shows how much that environment kind of works for them. But you're absolutely right. It is true for boys, but it's also true in general for kids of this age. If you're talking six to 10, if you have a conversation with a six-year-old, you kind of have to do a lot of prompting. You know, you ask questions and they'll answer and that gets the conversation going. And I think it's hard for kids of that age to just sit down and have like a chat about things, you know, they really want to be doing something or playing while they're socializing. So I think voice chat is huge for when kids are in these environments. And, and I think it should be spatial kind of 3D voice chat. So you can just walk up to people very organically. What's funny, though, as Sam said, it's not strictly online. So we were actually surprised by this. But in our beta, which is out in tens of thousands of classrooms, we were surprised by how often we would have a whole classroom of kids all playing together at the same time. And we found teachers were sort of allowing kids to sort of spend the last five or 10 minutes playing together. And if you watch kids doing that, they're all running around sort of virtually while sitting in the same room and they're kind of yelling out to each other and talking to each other and saying like, let's go here, let's go there. So it can actually kind of work in both ways. And it can work if you're on your own at home playing remotely, but you can actually get together with a tablet, which is super portable, and then just sit around having like a play session. We've talked a lot about playing outside in the neighborhood. Well, this is a way that you can still have a play date, but then you have a huge wider range of things you can do together anything you can do virtually, which is basically anything, right? But you're all sitting together in person and having conversations about that as well. So we definitely are going to do spatial voice chat, but it's not limited to that. You can also get together and play together in person. Yeah, I really like that idea because I feel like almost no video games have an IRL component, except for maybe one of the most popular video games of all time, Pokemon Go. And especially if there's like a a gesture that represents a game. If you remember in that, like the, the, the really early days of Pokemon Go, you'd look outside, you'd literally just see people like running around with their like phone fully extended in front of them. Not like they're taking a selfie, but they're like chasing invisible creatures. And that just immediately leads people to ask, what are you doing that's 
looks like you're having a good time. I want to try it as well. And so I'd be super fascinated to think about like how you guys can be part of that, like how you can make something that kids can do in the classroom together. And there might be even like experiences that can only be done when you're actually together. I personally loved the like space team games where you have to kind of like yell to each other. You'd often play like in person, but all on your own screen. And you're all kind of like yelling at each other like, hey, you got to turn on the engines or like, oh, you know, like navigate 30 degrees to the left. And like the kids are all kind of like, you know, interacting with each other. And I thought that was super fun. And like, yeah, you can do it online, but it's like even more fun when kids have to like run around in person and do it. So we'd love to hear your ideas of like where the physicality comes into it, because I think that's also how people build memories. When they have a physical thing, when it's not just happening on the screen, they really remember it. Yeah, online can be a lot of fun, but there's a huge vibe difference when you're actually in the same room, right? There's sort of an energy when you're playing together like that. So, you know, I think we talk a lot about the future sort of being hybrid. We don't want people to retreat into just online spaces and sit in the room playing with people remotely. We want to actively encourage people to get together. But I think that with devices being so portable, we haven't really gotten close to sort of how much we can do there. So for us, I think that would look like, you know, I mentioned kids can build with blocks and so on. I think we'll have sort of trading possibilities where you can only kind of get access to the blocks that you have if you're in the same place. So you can get together and kind of swap them like baseball cards. And then also just having like a space, which is only like an island, say, which only appears if you're together with other people in the same place. So if we all get together, we can say there's like three of us, we can now go to a particular place that's local to where we are. People talk a lot about AR, um, augmented reality, but you don't even need it to be able to do this. You, you just need kind of presence and knowing that you're in the same place. AR, you know, is going to get there and that's going to be probably awesome too, but actually isn't necessary if you can just all get together and say, this space is only available when we're together. And so that's how we can kind of get access to new items and things in the world. Love it. So I would love to just hear a little bit about what else is missing in the education space, like beyond the scope of what you guys are trying to tackle. I would love to hear, Megan, maybe your opinion on like, what are some other major spaces that you think really still need improvement right now in the education world? One area that we're spending a lot of time in personally is like, this idea, as you think about just the future of education, especially in higher ed, like we've talked a bunch about K through 12 today, just alternative forms of higher education. And like I've spoken to a number of college students in the past couple of months that have just like dropped out to pursue their passion. And even just like five, 10 years ago, it, it looked very different. I think in COVID has changed to how a lot of people think about just career paths in general. I think another area is sort of helping international students in particular, right? Because you look at the sort of state of higher ed today and, you know, the top 10, top 20, top 30 schools are always going to see great demand. But how do you sort of, how do you improve the educational system and create more opportunity for folks abroad, which is becoming like, I think, a bigger focus for a lot of universities. And so that's an area we're spending time in. Or do you think immersive experiences are going to continue to be really interesting? Uh, and so those are a couple, but I think the beautiful thing is education is becoming such a big part of every sector. So like every healthcare company that we meet, every community oriented company they meet, they have some type of education component. And so you're almost seeing education become almost just like packaged up in the form of community building for a lot of new companies across sectors, which is really cool. 
Yeah, totally. I mean, you're definitely seeing that in the Web3 space where, you know, content marketing around education, like helping people understand this like weird new world is super popular. And the idea that all these companies are doing that kind of as a loss leader is a huge opportunity and to sort of, you know, benefit to the public that there are so many companies incentivized to help you understand these new these new worlds and professions. Yeah, some other ideas that I know that we're looking at at Signalfire, you know, we're investors in Class Dojo, but we're also investors in companies like CourseKey, which is uh, an operating system for trade schools. Like trade schools are incredibly important and a huge opportunity to give people a better career track without having this huge debt of higher education where like, you know, liberal arts is important, but like, you know, some people want to just be able to be sure to get a job because there's a lot of people who, you know, spend a lot on a liberal arts education and still can't get a job afterwards. And so it feels like trade schools need to be much more destigmatized and equipped with a lot better software so they can thrive in this economy because I think there's such shortages in a ton of major trades that we really need. And there's so much dignity in those trades as well. And then I think in the corporate front, you're also seeing, especially right now with resources a little bit tighter, people not hiring as quickly. If they have roles that they need to fill, there's a huge opportunity for them to, instead of paying a ton for a really expensive data scientist to actually train up maybe some of their data analysts or people with some of the skills, but not all of them and train them up to be able to take that role. So a great company called Modal from the founders of Udemy is focusing on that. And I think that's a huge opportunity, especially uh, around retraining as well, because the idea that like education stops when you get to about age 25 is crazy, especially given so many of the careers that exist, like don't even exist 10 years earlier. And so if you don't keep on learning new things, the skills that you have kind of fade away and they don't have real job opportunities anymore. So really excited about both trade schools and like in company training for, for promoting internal employees. Sam and Liam, any other like major spaces you want to see people building in? I think a lot of what you mentioned, I'm, you know, I'm really excited about. I, I think the common thread there is like, you know, non-traditional avenues to be a successful grown-up, right? So much of, you know, going to regular college, it's like another gate. And a lot of school is built around sort of getting you through these gates. So you train up to get SATs and you train up to get into college and then you maybe get a master's and then you maybe get into this company. And it's a lot of sort of increasingly expensive. And I think the pipe is just too narrow for many people to participate in it. And so people are looking for alternative ways to be who they want to be, to be successful. I'm really excited about any company or any um, program that, that helps people do that at any stage of what I think of as the funnel, which is you know going from kid to all the way through your life. So I think we're trying to play a role there in the really early years by kind of giving kids lots of these different experiences and, and making them think of themselves as someone who can kind of improvise around different situations rather than just what do I need to learn to meet that next hurdle to get through this gate? Because I think that's the mindset that is just really kind of stressful for people. And a lot of people are just putting tons of pressure on kids to get through a funnel that not that many people can get through and not that many people can afford. So I think everything Megan mentioned is on that trend of, on that theme of um, how can we create new avenues to success? And as you mentioned, trade schools as well. Awesome. So in a second, we're going to recap with some of the top points from our awesome speakers today. If you guys are building something in the education space, we'd love to hear about it at our firm SignalFire. We're a billion dollar under management early stage VC fund that actually helps. We have an MPS of 92 amongst founders because we've built recruiting technology to help them. We have in-house experts like the Xstripe CMO and my PR advisory program based on my time at TechCrunch. And so if you're looking for real help in the trenches, I would love to hear about what you're building, get a warm intro or just DM me 
uh, wherever you want. Talking a little bit about what Sam and Liam and Megan talked with us today about, it started with the idea that like there's a lot of broken incentive systems in learning. Things haven't changed nearly as enough, even though the technology is changing so fast. And a lot of tech has hit walls because you're either coming into this bureaucratic school system that's very resistant to change, or you're coming from these kind of exploitative tech companies that maybe are ad funded and all they care about is growth. And it's hard for parents and teachers to really feel like they have kids' best interests in mind. But, you know, education is such a human process and it really comes down to the people doing that work, the teachers and the kids and the families and what they really need. And, you know, I think Sam and Liam both had interesting educational experiences themselves, which is what unlocked the idea that they could really change this system. You know, with Liam going to a sort of Waldorf-esque school where you're doing activities way beyond traditional school subjects. And Sam, you know, had the school where it was really encouraging kids to look after each other and teach each other. And that kind of peer-to-peer education is so much of what I think Class Dojo is really about right now. But learning is really hard, especially on your own. We're pack animals. And yet so much of, of working classrooms is just like keep the kids quiet working at their desks, send them home, have them do homework by themselves. And a lot of that just drives conformity. It's just teaching kids to be drones, to be cogs in the machine and not necessarily to be creative or to really find their spark, which is you know the thing that they're going to be the best at because they truly love it. They're going to want to spend their extra time on it because when you're passionate about something, you learn so much faster because you really put your heart into it. But I think with gaming, there's a new way to explore these opportunities of what people want to learn. And that's what Class Dojo is really trying to do is building this new social graph where you know you intersect gaming and education by not having it be this open giant internet, but instead having kids learn amongst kids that they actually already go to school with, that they actually know, which lets them play safely, fail safely, and gives parents and teachers the, the kind of peace of mind that there's not something bad going on for them. And I love this idea of you guys building this less metrics driven, less grades driven world of education, because when you aren't stressed with those quotas and filling those grades, I think that's when kids really thrive. And so with this new world, you know, you're going to let kids, you know, have their own island, which they can design and develop themselves, build their own gadgets, invite friends to visit. But then they can also go to these big shared worlds for their classes where kids can, you know, play mini games like puzzles, learn about different professions, try out these new experiences. And eventually it's becoming this kind of developer platform where kids, teachers, developers can create their own learning experiences that get approved by Class Dojo and get integrated into the product. So whether you want to build something where you're going to walk around with the dinosaurs you're learning about or try to operate your own mission to Mars, that like kids can all do that together. And I think that that's super exciting, especially the idea of being able to remix those, because that's when you turn the kids into the creators themselves, when they don't have to do it all from scratch. And all of this is about creating this third space where, you know, because there's so much more social isolation, nuclear family households really divide kids from each other. People are scared about letting their kids wander around the neighborhood, but we really need that kind of third space where we can just play and experience each other, especially for young boys who maybe aren't as good at that face-to-face interaction, but really need that kind of shoulder-to-shoulder time where they have some third-party activity. And, you know, you see that on things like Fortnite, where they're spending these hours effectively on the phone together while they're playing. And I love that you guys have this, you know, class dojo mascot, this cool little ninja guy, because, you know, it makes kids feel like this is a place where they don't have to always be exactly their real selves. They can be this kind of imagined self that they want to be while simultaneously actually sharing and being vulnerable about their dreams, about themselves, about their fears and being around other kids that they can feel like they can experiment around. And long-term, we're hoping to see more alternative forms of higher education, trade schools, better ways for people to be trained up to new jobs while in their 
existing jobs and basically finding non-traditional avenues to become a successful adult. And I think that all starts with great education where you're surrounded by peers working on things together rather than just sort of completing a rote assignment by yourself. And I feel like that's what really captures the the essence of Class Dojo. Does that capture the sentiments, right, you guys? <laughs> that's an incredible summary, Josh. You are. Uh, you're very, very good at this. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. Well, I wanted to get a quick final comment from each of you about like, if there was something for parents, teachers, or even kids out there that you want them to know about how education is changing or how, why they shouldn't be necessarily afraid of the future, like, what would you say to them? And maybe we could start with uh, Liam and then Megan and then Sam. Yeah. Going back to the last point that we were talking about, I would say to kids, you know, you don't have to follow the established traditional path. I think the higher education and top colleges have been mythologized to such an extent. I just tell kids to always consider alternative paths and not believe that just because they don't have access to the top gatekeepers that they can't be successful themselves. And I think we're going to try to help support them along that journey as much as we can. My quick thoughts are, I think the future of education is going to be very child-led and different for every child. And so personalization is going to be front and center, but it's also going to be, I think, parents giving children a little bit more agency around how they learn and what they learn, allowing them to explore those passions both in and outside the classroom. And so that also just means having an open mind about where children are spending time outside of school, right? And so new spaces online, new types of chats, and also just like new modes of connecting online, right? And so I'm excited to see a lot more child-led personalized learning in the future, which, you know, Class Dojo is very definitely on the forefront of. You know, I, I think I'd say to kids that you get to write your life story. Every human life is different, unique, and you have amazing and a unique combination of talents and capacities inside you. You have a fountain of them. I think it's well worth taking the time to find your spark and the things that you love to do and the things that you're good at. And I'm hoping for parents that you'll give your kids both the space and the breadth to explore so that they can find their spark. And when they do, allow them to dive deep into Amazing. Thank you guys so much for talking to us about the future of education. And I hope if you're out there, no matter what age you are, you keep on searching for new things that like light that fire inside of you, make you passionate a bit about discovering new things, because that's what really keeps us young, no matter what age we are. So thank you so much for being here with us on Press Club, where the big names in tech talk about the big ideas. Thank you to the founders of Signal Fire portfolio company, Class Dojo. Congratulations on the massive new raise and super excited to see the launch of your metaverse. Thank you for sharing your hopes and dreams for education with us, as well as Megan from Lear Hippo. Thanks for all your perspective on the education space. Really, really thankful to have you guys here. So thanks again for being part of the Press Club community. And we'll catch you next week on Press Club, where the big names in tech talk about the big ideas. I'm your host, Josh Constein, former editor-at-large from TechCrunch and now a venture partner at Signal Fire. Thank you so much. Your ears are the most important thing in the world to us. So it really means a lot that you shared them with us today. So go find that thing that sparks your passion. So thank you, everybody.